podcast here with me mike and this is tim we're both uh, we're both huddled together like bradley cooper and lady gaga were <laughs> singing shallow doing our best to speak into one microphone yep uh not <laughs> breaking eye contact yeah. this whole time <laughs> no well, it was it was an interesting ceremony we just kind of wanted to give our reactions to the oscar nominations the oscar winners and also just kind of take an overview uh look at some of the controversies that have occurred and mm. And try to put it in some sort of context where this makes sense in terms of what's going on in, in you know broader society. Yeah, a lot of a lot of interesting choices, not all good ones for sure. And uh, one movie in particular is getting thrashed more than others. Yeah, and we're gonna get into that in a little bit. Yeah, uh, that's right. How did you do on some of your predictions this year? Uh, I, uh, I I think it was mostly they mostly came true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you look at like. Uh, Best actor Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody, like yeah. that, that seemed like a surefire thing. That winning uh, Regina King for If Beale Street Could Talk, Best Supporting Actress, yeah, that seemed like a surefire thing. Uh, Mahershala Ali for Green Book, Best Supporting Actor. I mean, uh, you know, these these seemed like sure things, and in in fact, that's indeed what happened. I just uh, I I predicted twelve, just a random twelve that I chose, mm. and actually. I got I got Regina King wrong, the best supporting actress, just because I I kind of just decided to be sort of cool and do an upset choice okay. for that one, and that was the wrong acting category to do. But yeah, uh, right, because for for best actor or best actress, sorry, yeah, that turned out to be Olivia Coleman for yeah. the favorite. Everyone said it was going to be Glenn Close. That's right, because that was, she, you know she'd been nominated for seven Oscars, never won. Yeah, that was one I got wrong. So right. that was the upset I should have gone for. But overall, I got about, I think, 8 out of 12 correct. Uh, I was also surprised by the Best Original Soundtrack category. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Ludwig Göransson this year for Black Panther. I, I think we had predicted the, the composer for If Beale Street Could Talk. Nicholas Bertel. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's right. Um, and, you know, of course, Best Picture was uh, one that we had predicted. It was Green Book. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people had predicted Roma would win. Fools. <laughs> <laughs> well, you uh, you kind of made the point that it would win best foreign language film. Yeah, I thought Roma was gonna, and it's it is what happened. Yeah, yeah, it was gonna have to settle for best foreign language feature. Right, and uh, you know uh, that was the the first of of three that it would pick up. Uh, Alfonso Cuarón won for best director. And he also won for Best Cinematographer, which is an amazing feat for a director to be, you know, his or her own cinematographer. And and not only did he do it, but he did such a stunning job. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many, you know, technical challenges in that that are, that are just enormous. Uh, and Rome overall is, I think, the big success story of the Oscars. It's, you know, one of those uh, winners that I, I think everyone can agree is is totally deserving. And I think it starts to... It starts to legitimize streaming services, in particular Netflix. Well, that was one big thing, Netflix versus the Hollywood studios. Yeah. And the fact that Netflix did quite well. I mean, they did spend reportedly over, what, $25 million just on their Oscar campaign. Right. They were really hoping to get that Best Picture win. They didn't get it, but they got a lot of, uh, you know, 
other important awards as well. Because it wasn't that long ago that Netflix was making great TV, but not very good movies. Right. And now it's kind of turning around. They're starting to put, to put out some really good movies as well. They're or at least, you know, to um, fund and distribute good movies. Right. You know, because right. I, you know... Um, Orson Welles was working on the other side of the wind long before Netflix came around. I know, and they were kind of the saviors of that film. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that film kind of just leads into the nominations themselves, and I think that's where the big bone of contention comes for me, is all the films that didn't get nominated and some mm. of the films that did. Right, so y y what, were, what are some snubs, for instance, that, that, that you're upset by? Well, I, I think, uh, first off, the technical categories. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody won, you know, sound mixing, best editing. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, it was ridiculous that it was nominated for so many categories. Okay. Rami Malek did a fine job as Freddie Mercury. The fact that that film was nominated for best picture and in the technical categories was a joke. Oh yeah, it was not a very good movie. And yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a solid biopic. That's uh, it. But that that's it. Just that's a really low bar. <laughs> that's a well, yeah, really low bar. I, I know. Maybe not best picture worthy. It's I, I've seen I've definitely seen better biopics. But I mean the real uh tragedy here is the technical categories where you have A hereditary. Mm, yeah. It didn't even get nominated for sound design and sound mixing. That had the best sound of any film this year. Yeah. Just an incredible use of sound to create effect. I mean you know, Bohemian Rhapsody used sounds. They did a good technical job in, in presenting these already great songs in a cool way. But, you know, Hereditary actually created original sounds. They used sound in such a unique and, and powerful way right. that the fact it wasn't nominated was a joke. I also think, hey, The Other Side of the Wind, the fact that they were able to find these cans of film in, in France and you know, get them over and, and edit, you know, over 100 hours of, of footage uh, and and actually release this in a somewhat coherent way or actually a pretty coherent right, yeah, way. Yeah, that should have been an editing nomination. It definitely should have been nominated. Yeah. And I would have <laughs> said it, it probably should have won. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can see. I, I would agree with you, I guess. The Oscars don't always get it right. The Academy, the Academy doesn't always get it right, do they? Well, and uh, a couple other technical categories as well. Uh, best costume and mm. best production design. Yeah. Uh, Black Panther won both. Both. I, I was happy with both of those. I, choices, I honestly know. didn't think Black Panther did much remarkable on either side. Uh, there's been so much discussion about this. Uh -huh. I'm really scratching my head to see what's so remarkable. It to me, it looked like another kind of generic. Uh, CGI Marvel film. Well, I think the visual effects for Black Panther, for instance, were quite blah. But mm -hmm. um, the you know, in a, in a very sort of way that mo modern movies don't impress me with their visual effects at all, really. But I thought the imagination behind behind Black Panther was quite cool. I did like the production design. You know, the Wakanda looked really neat, um, and the costumes were really were really bright and elaborate and beautiful to look at. So I was I was. I I would I wasn't a fan of Black Panther being nominated for Best Picture, but I really thought it was pretty good in the production category, in the technical categories. Yeah, it was I'm nominated I'm for and won. Still scratching my head. <laughs> I mean, for me, there's not really anything remarkable that stuck out in those two categories, mm. and uh, particularly considering when you have a movie like The Favorite, which was so lush in its production design and in its costume choices. And a movie like Suspiria, which it had a lot of flaws, yeah, and it you know wasn't that well received. Two things it had going for it were production design, uh, 
costumes to some degree, but cinematography as well. They all had this real kind of spooky, gloomy sort of 70s, you know, aesthetic going on. And the fact that they it wasn't even nominated in those categories, I thought was was pretty pretty pathetic. I'm getting a sense that you're a little bit more displeased with the Oscars than I am. Well, especially the technical categories where yeah. you these don't have to be the crowd pleasers that okay, yeah, yeah. you know the the prestige categories are. And uh, you know another one worth mentioning is uh, First Man for original score, Justin Hurwitz. <laughs> that was yeah, that was my favorite score of the year. Right, was Justin Hurwitz. Uh, I would also say Tom York's Suspiria. Okay. That was my favorite score of the year. Neither one of them were nominated. Yeah, that's that's true. I actually, before they, they announced the the award nominations, you know, when I was watching First Man some months ago, I thought, I bet this is, you know, I bet this is going to get nominated, and I wouldn't be surprised if it won. Right. But it wasn't even nominated. I know. Yeah. I know. It was sad. And, you know, you have uh, the score to Mary Poppins Returns. Mm. Uh, you have Black Klansman, which... You know, it it was a powerful movie in some ways, but one thing that was totally unremarkable about it was the score. Yeah, I don't really remember the music. I from can't Black remember Clansman. a single piece of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, oof. Yeah, really. Overall, the, it was a really sad year for best original soundtrack. Mm-hmm. When you have like you know Tom York with Suspiria, when you have the the soundtrack to First Man, uh, and probably a few other movies we could throw in if we really think about it. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, the soundtrack, the sound design of Hereditary was so, you know, arresting that I could even see it being nominated for Best Score as well. Mm, that's true. Uh, uh, you know, between the two major horror movies of the year, it was A Quiet Place that got a sound nomination as well. Yeah, which is somewhat ironic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. But uh, I was pleased with, with at least that movie getting some recognition. Uh, best cinematography. It was great to see Alfonso Cuaron win. And that's right. Three Oscar wins for... Alfonso Cuaron that night. I, I probably I probably would have chose him regardless of who was nominated. Uh-huh. But Suspiria and First Man definitely should have been nominated as well. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, some movies got their due, like Cold War, luckily. Cold War. Oh, it's great to see Cold War before, nominated. Yeah, even before Biff, you know, back whenever it was maybe, I don't know, Cannes or Venice, whenever Cold War was just starting to make the rounds last year. All the reviews were talking about what a beautiful movie it was to look at. So Cold War, I'm glad that that got a, a nomination for cinematography, but I was even more glad to see Alfonso Cuaron come away with it because he did this, the cinematography himself. And in kind of a Billy Wilder sort of manner, you know, Billy Wilder winning all those Oscars for The Apartment in the uh, 60, 61-ish, um, you know, Alfonso Cuaron does the exact same thing. Yeah, and there's not too many directors who are their own cinematographers. Uh, Steven Soderbergh comes to mind. Mm, Paul he, Thomas he, Anderson on Phantom Thread. Yeah, because Soderbergh goes under a, a pseudonym yeah, for his uh, cinematography. I forget what it is, Roderick James, or maybe that's the Cohen. I, I forget uh-huh. who it is, but uh, yeah, for a while now he's done his own cinematography. Uh, the cinematography of First Man, this beautiful use of 16 millimeter, uh, was, was so incredible. Uh, regardless of what you thought about the film, I've never seen a film which kind of encapsulated the experience of being in this, you know, tin can flying through space and just mm. how vulnerable they were. Yeah, that was the thing that I came away with from First Man was just realizing that when you go into space, you are just in a in a iron tube. Yeah. You know, that is all you're in. It's, you know, it, and it was, it's made out of nuts and bolts and people just put drills and hammers to it. And yeah. it's like making a table or something like that. And they it, just send it's you so creaky, space. yeah. And you know the camera just shakes so violently 
when you're in that. Uh, it just it also captured really the the '60s aesthetic mm-hmm. in a way that very few films ever have. And yeah. I, I respect Damien Chazelle's choice to actually shoot on 16 millimeter for for a good uh, portion of the film. And uh, Suspiria as well, just, you know, as I alluded to before, this really sort of gloomy, spooky 70s feel that you would get from, say, like Roman Polanski's 70s horror films. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Luca Guadagnino's ability to kind of capture this aesthetic, despite the movie having some major flaws, it was really remarkable. Mm -hmm. But yeah, not a single nomination for Suspiria, though. Or hereditary, or yeah. Hereditary. Horror movies kind of got. Uh, and well, the, the Academy though they don't really generally like horror movies. I know. You know they, it's just not really, not really something that they go after. It's not something they go after. But then you have a movie like First Reformed, which you know Paul Schrader, uh-huh. writer director. It's it's more of a, an acting vehicle, and it's yeah. it's more of a dramatic piece. It's also very topical, being about sort of climate change. Uh, this movie, I thought, really could have been nominated for, say, Ethan Hawke, Best Actor, mm-hmm. or even Best Picture. Because yeah. uh, I thought, I, for me, it made my top ten of the year. Yeah, it didn't quite make my top ten, but I, I did enjoy it. Uh, I, I mean, A24 kind of must be scratching their heads right now. They they were behind First Reformed. They were behind Hereditary. Uh, I think they were behind Eighth Grade as well, weren't the, they? The, yeah, and they were behind Climax. Yeah. And uh, none Which, of those films got nominated for yeah. a lot. I, First Reform did get nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but that's yeah. about it. Yeah, A24 is doing some of the best work out there, but they're not necessarily getting the Oscar recognition so far, or at least this year. Climax, though, I'm I'm a little unsure about what is the deal with that because it was making the festival rounds last year, but I saw online somewhere that it's going to get general release in March. Hmm. So hard to say whether it's going to be counted as a 2018 movie that was not nominated for anything this year or if it's going to be a 2019 movie and we'll see it at the 2020 Oscars. Uh, I have a very strong feeling it's going to be ignored if it is up for nomination next year. <laughs> yeah, I do I do as well. And for those who don't know what that is, that's the new Gaspar Noé movie that yeah. we both caught at the Busan International Film Festival. And everyone I've talked to who's seen it uh, loves it. Yeah, yeah, man. I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm seeing great reviews for it online from critics and just regular viewers alike. Yeah, we yeah. We both loved it. Uh, one other thing that should be mentioned, too, is the Best Actress category, which mm. I think was was more interesting than the Best Actor category this year. It was. An incredibly it, strong field. And it finished more interestingly as well. It did, uh, with Olivia Colman winning for The Favorite. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was such a, a powerhouse of, of acting. Yeah. You know? it, All it three major actresses in that film did such an amazing job. They did. That's why The Favorite was my favorite movie of the year. Oh, okay. It was. It's that, yeah, I made a top ten list. Uh, the favorite was unexpectedly my favorite movie of 2018. I, w- I didn't go into it expecting it to be my favorite movie of the year because I like some of the other things I saw by Yorgos Lanthimos, like The Lobster. Yeah. But I don't think any of his other movies would ever have been my favorite movie of the year. But the I, favorite was. I actually picked The Lobster as my favorite movie from, I think, two years ago. And I've been a fan of, of uh, Lanthimos's work for a while. And mm-hmm. I was so happy to see him, you know, get a Best Directing nomination, Best Picture nomination, to see Olivia Colman win Best Actress. Mm-hmm. But it must be said, yeah, Tony Collette <laughs> should have been nominated for Hereditary. Yeah. That's just, I can't believe it. I know. That she wasn't, I mean, that is bar none the best 
female performance in any movie this year. I, I think so too. And um, that was my favorite performance from an actress this year. My favorite performance from an actor was probably Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born, but it mm. doesn't, you know, it didn't compare to what Tony Collette did in Hereditary. And as happy as I was for Olivia Coleman, uh, Tony Collette, I think, just gave my favorite overall performance from any movie. Yeah, this year. just such a vulnerable, heartbreaking, horrific performance. I think it was her performance that made the movie so distressing. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily the things that happened or the creepy ghosts or whatever. It was. It was her wailing and shrieking and crying after a death in the family. That it, kind it of thing. It must have been so exhausting for it, her. Oh, it yeah. really must have been. I'm sure it was. But that was. I remember watching, just thinking, "Oh gosh, this is this is horrible to watch." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, in, in kind of the best way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where it's so impactful in a way that it works. Yeah, I think there's horrible, bad, and there's sort of horrible in a you know this this movie is distressing me, which is the the goal of the movie yeah which is what the movie's trying to do and that's that's that way it works uh, a couple other things we should probably point out too uh for the best adapted screenplay i really think barry jenkins should have won that for uh -huh. if, Beale, if Beale street could talk yeah um I, I just watched that recently and i think he did a phenomenal job adapting that yeah he's a very talented writer I, I think Jenkins he's great he's one of our you know best directors going mm -hmm. right now and uh he's just got such a a humane point of view that he brings to his cinema yeah and i think that further snub of if beale street could talk adds to the controversy over green book winning right which, will, which yeah, is yeah, we're the gonna get to big in controversy of the year <laughs> yeah um also eighth grade not really being nominated is is a mm. real head scratcher um i guess so much of it has to do with release times too because eighth grade mm. was a summer release mm. hereditary was what like a february release i think february, it was pretty early March. it was pretty early and so early releases like that aren't really not really fa not really in its favor you know it's yeah. not really in movies favor to be released so early if you want to succeed at the oscars right rightfully right. or not oh and i just m remember too to add to the ridiculousness of the best original soundtrack mandy was a nominator for best original soundtrack mm. which would have been you know all the more justified this year because the composer actually passed away this year. Oh, that's right. Or last year, I should say. That's right. That's right. Yeah. The uh, guy who did uh, the guy who did Arrival. Yes. Yeah. And we're talking, of course, of Johan Johansson, who mm -hmm. you know, he he's done some fantastic work. I I love some of the tracks on Mandy, and yeah, really Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah. Instead of Johan <laughs> Johansson, instead of Tom York, instead of Justin Hurwitz. It, I, there's just yeah. Don't yeah. get me started on that again. All right. Well, I won't. I certainly won't. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, the Academy doesn't always do it right, and uh, I think this was no different. You well, know, but, you know, any time that, for instance, Alexandre Desplat is nominated, he usually beats your favorite. <laughs> Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, he usually beats out Johnny Greenwood, too. It's like Spike Lee said, any time there's a, someone driving a car, I lose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and any time right. Alexandre Desplat is nominated, uh, he's going to beat Johnny Greenwood he's if gonna. they're head-to-head. -head. <laughs> uh, but listen, let's kind of take an overview here of the Oscars, because uh -huh. I think... You know, we could easily get into the back and forth about controversies without really kind of putting them in context of, of why they're controversial in the first place. Mm. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, 
ink spilled over the Oscars and how relevant they are with with numbers declining in recent years. I mean, last year's Oscars were the least watched mm. in history. Yeah, that's right, with uh, 26.5 million viewers right. last year. This year uh, was, you know, a significant increase. There was almost 30 million people who watched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, people are attributing that to... You know, more popular films, more kind of blockbusters being included in Best Picture, more diversity, the lack of a host being shorter. What did you think of that? I thought that the host, having no host was a really good idea. I didn't see the whole ceremony, so uh, I'm just relying on what people said, but it it seems to make sense. I mean, you cut down on the time. Uh, hosts for Oscars, at least in recent years, it's always seemed redundant to me anyways. So. And I think lately they haven't been very good, yeah. to be honest. The one the one I remember the most from recent memory, I mean, in the, I say recent, I mean, it's in the, within the last 10 years, was that fiasco with James Franco and Anne Hathaway, which was really bad. Oh, yeah. But I thought... I, I, I thought that having no host really made the show roll. And there was only one publication from a, one, one publication. It was one of the major ones, a CNN or a Time or Newsweek, one opinion piece that didn't like that there was no host and said next year the Oscars should get a host. But more, more often than not, I've been seeing good things to say about no host. Well, the whole reason that there's a, a controversy over the host in the first place was the fact that, you know, Kevin Hart was a spo- was originally supposed to be the host. Uh-huh. And then some homophobic comments that he'd made in the past resurfaced and, and he was fired. Yeah. And, you know, taking an overview, this really gets to the heart about what's going on with the Oscars, why there's so much angst about the relevancy and, and you know, declining numbers, because they're really experiencing an identity crisis right now between people who want them to be about artistry and craftsmanship and, and celebrating films that, you know, have the most artistry and, and are daring and original versus people who want the Oscars to be a vehicle for social justice. Mm-hmm. And, that yeah, the Oscars do kind of seem to be, um, those two ideologies do kind of seem to be at odds with each other at the moment. Indeed. But, you know, it's not to say that they're mutually exclusive either. But they, they certainly what, don't have to be. They, they they definitely don't have to be. But the Academy right now seems to be unable to make anyone happy. Well, I think the reason that is is because, you know, there there's so much of the sort of criticism about the Oscars is being fueled by online discourse. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Oscar So White campaign and all the sort of like, uh, you know, Twitter backlash to, like, say, Green Book winning Best Picture. Uh, a lot of this is, is being fueled by online discourse. And the critics themselves are being influenced by it. I mean, a lot of the critics kind of lashing out at Green Book winning, I think, are, are probably being motivated or at least influenced by, you know, Twitter and, and Twitter campaigns. Mm-hmm. And kind of the built-in hysteria of online discourse where, you know, nothing is tempered. Everything is is extreme. This is either the greatest movie ever made or just the worst piece of shit you're ever going to (laughs) see. I remember seeing, you know, when when it was La La Land against Moonlight and when it looked like La La Land was just sweeping everything. Mm. And I remember seeing something online that said something like, it would be a catastrophe if La La Land <laughs> were to win Best Picture. And I just mm. thought, a catastrophe? Yeah. 
you don't think it would just be mildly annoying? Right. <laughs> it would actually be a whole entire catastrophe if La La Land were to win. And well, again, there's so much worse this year with Green Book winning, though. Yeah, like, the hype. There is a lot of hyperbole. Uh, well, I know, there's a lot of hyperbole. Uh, Justin Chang, I think, wins the hyperbole award uh, mm. this year uh, with. I interviewed him last year. By yeah, the way, for for Biff, he came he came to Busan. I interviewed him. Nice fella. I don't always agree with his criticisms, but he's he's a nice guy, and it was fun talking to him. He seems like a nice guy, and I've uh, I've also agreed with some of what he's had to say. But I, I mean, in this regard, with the Green Book, you know, controversy, I I think his comments are just really over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, can I quote? Yeah, here? what does he say? He says, Green Book is, quote, insultingly glib and hucksterish, a self-satisfied crock masquerading as an olive branch. Oof. It reduces the long, barbaric, and ongoing history of American racism to a problem, a formula, a dramatic equation that could be balanced and solved. Green Book is an embarrassment. The film industry's unquestioning embrace of it is another. Ouch. And, you know, a lot that's, of people are harsh. comparing it to Crash from yeah. 2006 winning Best well, Picture. Yeah, that's what Justin Chang says is that it's the worst Best Picture winner since Crash. Yeah. Which, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I, don't, I don't think it was the best movie of the year by no. any stretch of the imagination. I don't think it was the best movie of the nominees. Well, uh, I want to say two things. Me reacting to the hyperbole over, you know, Green Book winning shouldn't be confused with me defending it being the best picture winner. Right, right, right. It was by no stretch of the imagination the best film of the year. In my mind, that was Roma. Uh Uh-huh. It was also, you know, not a particularly great movie about race relations. What it was was a a buddy comedy, which Peter Fairley has done a fair number of, about race relations, Mm -hmm. but not in a particularly meaningful or, you know, uh, socio-realistic way. I think perhaps that might be what is upsetting people as well, mm-hmm. is that it wasn't meaningful and it wasn't... But even though it maybe it sort of perhaps is pretending to be, and yeah. that might be why people are taking so much issue to Green Book winning. But I, I, I would counter with that's what Hollywood does. Well, yeah, no, it's you certainly know? par for the course. It's yeah. really par for the course for the Academy to to do that. You know, it's whether... I mean, whether you just want to look at at choosing a harmless movie about something that should be more meaningful or if you just want to talk about the academy making the wrong choice you know forrest gump over pulp fiction and the shawshank redemption or shakespeare and shakespeare love, and love over... ordinary people yeah. i mean the, the list goes on and on yeah that's right uh but this is what hollywood has always done they've celebrated cl- crowd-pleasing movies that you know take something real and and reduce it and make it entertaining yeah that's kind of what the hollywood machine is all about mm-hmm. and you know I will give it credit too. It is funny. It is entertaining. It yeah, is enjoyable. I had fun watching Green Book. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a fun movie. And both of the performances, the lead performances, are great in it. Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, I, I think if we take a, a broader view on this, though, there is something really interesting going on here. Green Book, for all its flaws and its superficialities, it does include class in its analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Tony Lip's character is a lower class Italian guy. Mm-hmm. He's he's not polished. He's he's rough. He's also racist at the beginning of the film and, and maybe at the end of the film as well. Now while the film kind of presents this easy redemption, path of redemption for him, you know, drive a black guy around for a few months and then hey, you're not racist anymore. Yeah. 
That's a pretty superficial approach. Right, and again, that's why I think a lot of people are upset by the movie winning. Yeah, uh, I I just think the the fact that it does include class is at least an interesting aspect of the Mm, film. Yeah. Because class is so ignored in, in, you know, Hollywood in general. I, I took a look at a study... There were between 1905 and 2015 uh, about 200 and I believe 99 films made about poverty yeah. or homelessness in any sort of meaningful way. Which uh, yeah, it's not it's not very many when you think about it. All the movies that are made every single year. Yeah, that's but not much. I mean, put it in perspective of today. Right now, the world is being overturned by this, uh, you know, populist economic movement Mm -hmm. with Trump and Brexit and all these different governments getting elected in Europe. And yet not a single Hollywood film could find a way to talk about it. You kind of have to do a little digging for that fact to dawn upon you just goes to show how how buried it is in in kind of the discourse uh, around these Hollywood movies. I think a lot of times, perhaps, when you make movies about class and poverty and things like that, it's typically more auteur filmmaking, more independent filmmaking. Yeah. You know, like the what the Italians were doing after World War II, kind of just taking a look at the, the streets of Italy. Yeah, the neorealists right there. They were just sort of taking a camera to the streets of Italy and showing poverty in the streets. Or Ken Loach with I, Daniel Blake mm-hmm. a few years back, or uh, Sean Baker with The Florida Project. Yeah, a lot more independent work yeah. than studio work. And I think, you know, the big studios are probably made up of, of people who are pushing for lower taxes and don't necessarily want films that are, that are going to, you know, criticize the system and, and maybe hurt their bottom line. Yeah. But I, I think also... Um, you know, identity is just easier for studios to deal with. Studios can uh, make a movie about identity that's not going to hurt their bottom line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I guess they're they're populist movies, aren't they? What At the, the end uh, of the day, the, po- the 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 identity movies. Well, they're they're populist in a certain sense. I right. mean, they're not populist in an economic sense. No, but they're in a social one. Yeah, yeah. They uh, they reach for sort of a a social criticism without getting into sort of a broader economic criticism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think maybe film critics themselves are, are accepting of this because they don't have to deal with this sort of r- the reality of, of, you know, poverty or, or you know, living in a, a struggling community. A lot of these people are living in, in cities and their way of, of keeping tabs on society is through, you know, social media. And social media, uh, you know, all this, the uh, identity politics stuff is mostly driven by social media. I mean, it lives online. All these campaigns start on Twitter. And so I think they get a sense or feeling that they're in touch with society by the fact that they're dealing with, responding to, keeping track of all these social media campaigns when they have no idea what's actually going on in a lot of struggling communities. They don't live there. They, there are no movies really being made about it. So they just have no idea what's going on. And I think that's scary because, I mean, you know, look at Brexit. Look at, look at Trump. The the intellectual class thought they had, had it figured out. They thought they knew what was going to go on, and things totally surprised them. And, you know, maybe if there were movies made about these things, people would be aware of the shocking reality of this stuff. It wouldn't be surprising because we would know about it. Mm. One thing movies can do is inform us about the reality we live in, about the world we live in. And uh, the fact that movies aren't doing that is, is kind of frightening.
Well, you've obviously thought about Green Book much more than I have. <laughs> uh, but it sounds like, yeah, you're kind of in a position where you feel like you might have to defend it a little bit. Not the movie itself, I suppose, but perhaps the the Academy's decision for why they, they gave it Best Picture. Um, I, I just kind of th- thought of it as just... Um, I, I You know what? I think you've probably thought about it a lot more than even the Academy has, to be honest. Um, it just kind of seems like the producers just liked it, and they they just gave it the the award you know what i mean it yeah. just it seems like it was just the wrong choice i don't know if the if the rich producers are thinking about well this is a movie that discusses class and so <laughs> gonna do, gonna give it that's my impression of a producer um i don't very good impression i don't think they're thinking about that at all but no and i, I don't think in general they think about these uh-huh. things but i think they see identity as something like well, we can make a lot of money and, you know, boost our our progressive cr- credentials at the same time. Uh, sure, sure. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't, again, I don't know. Do you think the, the producers care about being progressive? They probably do just to save face. But They I care don't about think, the appearance and publicity of it. Yeah, I don't think they care about it, it just for the sake of being progressive. No, and I, I will just say one other thing about Green Book. It's superficial, nowhere near the best picture of the year yeah. and the criticisms of its of its handling of say Don Shirley and you know race relations are valid my only point is if you're going to criticize that for being shallow in, in certain political aspects mm. you have to criticize other movies for being shallow in political aspects sure, sure. and those criticisms aren't being made mm, yeah that's true I, I suppose um, still though uh, not the best movie, not uh, not the right choice. Definitely political because movies like If Beale Street Were Ta- Could Talk were snubbed as well as Widows. That was a big one. Yeah, right. Widows got, got bupkis right there. Did it win awards in, in other awards ceremonies? Um, I'm not really sure, actually. It, it, yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know if it did. I, th- I think it got snubbed uh, quite quick, yeah. if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, I mean that that also has some interracial uh, themes to it. Yeah, and so that's a big reason why I think as well people are just annoyed that that movie got snubbed in favor of Green Book. Yeah, right. Yeah, so there is some there is definitely some political some political strife and some political controversy going on, especially since it was made by the guy who did Dumb and Dumber, and there's something about Mary Peter Farrelly, Peter, Peter Farrelly, and that they apparently. Uh, you alluded to it. They didn't really even talk to the Shirley family about it at all. Yeah, and it's become this, you know, he said, she said thing with, uh, you know, Tony the Lips family. I mm-hmm. can't remember his name. Valalonga. Valalonga. Valalonga yeah. family. With Nick Valalonga, uh, you know, saying one thing and then Don Shirley's family saying another. And nobody, you know, has really done the research to determine what exactly happened here. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's it's become a messy controversy, and like I said, I can understand a lot of it. Uh huh. Um, but it's a sign of the times. It's a sign of the fact that the Oscars is really going through an identity crisis, mm. and you know, it might take some time before sort of a you know more of a consensus builds about what this ceremony should be about. Yeah, I think things are changing. Definitely, definitely, uh, perhaps for the better, but they, there might be some growing pains. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Um, hopefully in the future, at the very least, some of these underlooked, you know, uh, performances and films get attention, you know, the attention that they deserve. That's right. Well, you know, Tim, you and I are working on a podcast about Taxi Driver that we want to release. Yep. 
But uh, this was kind of just a bit of a placeholder. But uh, I'm glad that we got together to share our thoughts on the Oscars. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And uh, we're trying to be more regular with our output here. That's so. right. This is our second one in two months. Hey, we're That's doing right. all right here. <laughs> That's right. That's regularity right there. Indeed. That's indeed. right. Don't forget to like and subscribe us. Uh, Tim works really hard on the YouTube videos. That's your job. That's what you do. Yes. Yeah. Uh, got another YouTube video coming out real soon about Paul Thomas Anderson. Nice. That's right. That's what we did. We did that one quite a while ago, but the YouTube video will be up soon. Uh, so, yeah, just uh, please keep on listening to us. Leave us some comments and subscribe, and we'll be around next time. Thank you.